Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians is the commercial capital of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is the western coast, our western end of Turkey. It is again uh, butts into the Aegean Bay, and it is then the western end of the landmass that gets you all the way from everything in Europe to the Middle East. So it's the port. It is a port town, and that is fundamental. It's the most accessible artificial harbor for the biggest ships in all of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor, again, I remind you, it's like you've got Turkey, and then you have to keep going down, and then Israel's the next western coast, and then you head down to the south, and that's Egypt. That's huge. So, and Turkey, as you're aware of, is infinitely larger uh, than, than, obviously, Israel and so forth, and the areas surrounding it. So you have this massive landmass. And uh, right in the middle of it, we were, we were there last time, and that's Galatia. Now we're on the western end of it. Because it's a port town, and we talked a little bit about that, of course, that means it receives a lot of customs. Uh, that's fundamental in regards to something being purchased. Purchasing and redemption becomes a common theme in, Eph- in Ephesians because of that. Paul always seems to get some kind of pulse of the community and then kind of contributes to that pulse and shows them he doesn't try to make he doesn't try to take totally ungodly ideas and then just slip in God into them. But what he does try to do is he does try to take something that was in their culture that they understood and say, well, just like that, this is how it is for us. And he did that in regards to this issue of purchasing and redeeming. So Marcia is in Europe. By the way, you're probably aware of the fact Europe was uh, and well, still is in many ways. A sort of a major producer of a lot of the items then, especially when you're in a Roman Empire, you know, that then gets shipped to the rest of the world. Uh, we can be thankful, by the way, because it was the Romans who did all that. The Romans were the ones who built the waterways. Let me back up for a second to show you the brilliance of God. First of all, you have uh, Babylon that had conquered, as you're probably aware of, that had conquered Israel back in 586-587 B.C., when they conquered Israel, they conquered everything. That was sort of the first major empire after the Assyrians. And the one thing that they did was they gave us a global view. That was the first thing that happened. Fundamental. It was the first time that we thought outside of our box. And one of the things they did, and they learned that from the Assyrians, if you will, is they deported. So what happened is they would take over an area, they'd rip most of the people out of that area, and they'd put people from everywhere else there who couldn't even talk to each other. And so... It was kind of an interesting aspect. We kind of all, I mean, imagine, if you will, all we spoke were our native tongues, and we stared at each other. And one thing is it's really hard to rise up and create a great revolt. And they knew that. And that was what the Babylonians gave us, though, was they gave us, because of that, we were much more aware, kind of like London, we're very aware of the world, because we have the world in this room right now. We have, I mean, think of how many places are represented just by the people in this room. But then what happened is, after the Babylonians, they were ultimately conquered by the Greeks. And what the Greeks gave us was a common language. It was the first time since the Tower of Babel, the known world all spoke the same language. And that's a crazy thought. And that didn't mean you didn't speak your native tongue. But there was a commercial language. And a commercial language meant that if we were going to trade with the rest of the world, we had to at least agree upon that. Now, do you know there is a commercial language today? Do you know what the commercial language is? English. English is the commercial language. You're right. Um, because it's like, you know, there have been debates. People, for instance, really want to, well, when a fifth of the world lives in China and so much is produced there, they wanted to make it Chinese. But the problem is the rest of the world already 
in some way or another knows that there's going to be this, speaking of it, the Arab world wants it to be Arabic because, of course, money comes from oil. And, uh, but fundamentally, our commercial language is still English at this point. Now, so here we are. Think of this. We have, we have this global view for the first time. And once we have this global view, which the Assyrians and then ultimately the Babylonians gave us, and then we have a language where we could all speak to each other, then the Romans come in, and what the Romans do is they pave the world. They build all of these ports for ships to land, and they build all of these roads, and then Jesus comes, so when the gospel goes forth, we already think globally, we can all speak the same language in essence, and they've already paved the road so we can get that gospel out everywhere. Isn't that beautiful? Now, we have not had that sense until now. We have the strangest thing because we can, I mean, could you imagine the idea, trying to pitch a hundred years ago the idea that you would be able to speak with someone in China. And you don't even have to learn Chinese. They don't even have to learn English because, I mean, granted it's funky when you do things like Google Translate, but there's much better translation programs out there, but you can actually speak to a translator, and that translator may be living in Luxembourg. But you can text the translator, the translator can then turn that in, then you've got this guy somewhere in China. Imagine pitching that 100 years ago. Now, here's the great part. Those were all ungodly, uh, ungodly kingdoms. And God allowed the ungodly kingdoms to set the scene for when the Lord came. And now the ungodly world has set the scene again. Sounds like a great time for the Lord to come. And I want to stress, man, if the Lord comes tonight, are you ready? Now, when Ephesians, because we were a commercial town, it was a melting pot. And because it was a melting pot, we all kind of looked, you know, we looked very different. San Francisco is a port, a port town. London, of course, was birthed as a port town and, of course, became hugely so 100 years ago, 200 years ago, because of, the, of, because of our Thames. Because of that, we were we were a melting pot, we, and because of that, it's more likely a person in London speaks more than one language than it would be anywhere else in England. Even if you butted, if, even if you were on the border of another country, it's more likely you would speak another language here, because often, to be honest, most of the people here aren't even originally English, and that makes a difference. Now. You bought something, you know, Marcia goes to Italy, she buys something there, she goes to Corinth, which is known for its pottery, along with all of this sin and horrible other things, but Marcia didn't go for any of that. She went for the pottery, and she bought this stuff. She doesn't want to have to take it back with her, so she has it shipped. But she doesn't have it shipped to, um, to the place. They won't, they won't take it, let's say, let's say she lived in Israel. They wouldn't take it all the way to Israel. They'd take it to the port town of Ephesus. And as they took it to the port town of Ephesus, she'd need to show up there at Ephesus. She'd have to show, and what would happen is there would be this seal. She would take the wax, she'd melt it, she'd either have it as an amulet around her neck or a, or a ring around her finger. She'd stick that in the wax, and that was her sign. That was her official insignia. Uh, the royals still have one today. And then when she showed up at Ephesus, that box would have her seal on it, and all she had to do was show her seal, and that was clearly it. And, of course, that's what Paul banks on when he tells us in Ephesians 1 that the moment you believed, you were bought. And you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it tells us that it wasn't just the Holy, he wasn't just the Holy Spirit of promise so that you were promised, but it tells us he's a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And they totally, they totally got that. 
is that seal guaranteed that it was purchased, that it was there, it was already owned. Marcia already owns it. She just, at this point, hasn't grabbed it yet. But she's going to go and grab it. And in that same way, I challenge you, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that there is a moment, it says, that when the, when it says that the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, it tells us that the dead in Christ will be raised first, and after that, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up is in the, in the Latin is the word rapturas, from where we get the word rapture from. And the idea is simple. He's coming to get his own. It's, we've already been sealed. The only thing left is for him to grab his possession. And he promised us that. Now, uh, again, I remind you that the... Uh, the notable center of the entire town was the, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, uh, you know, roughly from 550 B.C. It was considered one of the seven ancient wonders. It was actually basically seven to eight stories tall. The columns themselves were six stories tall, uh, covered about 10,000, I'm sorry, 100,000 square feet. I had 127 of these, uh, you know, six-story tall marble pillars. And with that comes our two key points on all of this, other than the practicality of the done and doing. The first is, that again, and we talked about this last week, to prime us, the issue of that there was this heavenly place. They were very aware of a supernatural world. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I've been to, Eph- uh, to Ephesus several times. Ephesus, by the way, now, I don't know if you know, it was so rich, it's actually landlocked. It's six miles in now. From that means in the last 2,000 years, the way that the, um, the richness of the Aegean Bay has brought in so much silt that actually six miles of new ground has been gained there. So that which was a port town is now six miles out. Now, I think the same thing is happening in Italy for the most part. It's like if you waited long enough, you'd actually get beachfront property, and then you'd actually have to wait again because you have to buy new beachfront property because new beach is coming to your front property. Um, now, with that, we were aware. Imagine being raised in a place where you were very aware that there was a, a spiritual world, a spiritual world that somehow existed in a place that you couldn't see. Now, that doesn't sound that strange. <clears throat> 10, 15 years ago, there was a whole book series called uh, Piercing the, This Present Darkness. Uh, Peretti was the author. And it sent people in, on this crazy goose chase about what the heavenly places were and what that was like. And it was amazing because people just didn't read Ephesians, where at least you get some standards. I mean, you can, you can posthumize all you want. But in the end, wouldn't it be nice if at least you knew what the, what the Bible said to set biblical standards before you kind of went and jumped off the cliff? Well, so, okay, so, so here we are. We believe that there's this spiritual world out there. And here's the thing, let me ask you. Is there a spiritual world out there? I mean, biblically, is there a spiritual world out there? Yeah, absolutely. Is there a heavenly place? Yeah, clearly. As a matter of fact, we know that God dwells in heaven. We pray our Father who art in heaven. Clearly, there's a heavenly place. And if you've read these books, one of the things it focuses on, and it gets just kind of, it gets just weird to me, and I don't want to pick on the guy, but it kind of got, and again, this is, I just watched the fruit of it, which was this idea that if you prayed more, it was sort of like, Angels battling demons somewhere in this world, and if you prayed enough, your angels would win. And it just seemed like a strange reason to pray, versus hanging out with God and talking with Him. I mean, you're, you know, anyways, it's like, I don't want my day to be bad, so I'm going to pray so my angels win. Well, anyways, so there was this, and the question then is, how does that, how do we relate to that place? Now, for us, 
If our Father is in heaven, how do we connect with that? Well, that's a pretty simple answer for us. That's our whole answer to Jesus. We're starting from the other side of that. But for these people, imagine there was a world you can't see, and you could look out to the sky, and you knew out there somewhere were beings. And if you were, you know, you were Greek or Roman, you just, I mean, you had, basically they were like the Avengers. They had like superpowers, but they were very, very faulty in their character. You know, they were basically guys that were nuts. But they, you know, and they should never have had the powers they had. I mean, it was weird things. You know, one guy would rape this guy's daughter, and then this guy would make him, you know, do this, and then another guy would roll a stone up a hill forever. And this guy, on the other hand, turns into a girl and has a bunch of babies, and his name is Loki, by the way, for what it's worth. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how you get all of these stories, but they're like, they're just a bunch of testosterone-filled guys that seem to have superpowers. Anyways, all of that said, we're out there, and we're trying to figure this out one if you don't have a real answer, someone else is going to come up with one. And the answer that they had was that there was this earthly world you could touch and feel, and there was this spiritual world you couldn't. And the way that the two connected was in the most transcending experience a human being could have. Now, as far as a secular world's concerned, that isn't connected to a living God. That was the physical sexual experience. So that was what they banked it on. This Artemis was a goddess of pleasure, and the idea was is that if you basically had sex with one of their temple prostitutes, you were connecting heaven and earth. Now, that's crazy in a couple ways, but I mean, obviously, first of all, it was huge business, needless to say, for the, uh, for the Ephesians, and they were an extremely wealthy community as a result of it, and very well visited. But I mean, imagine people were going there to sin. They were going there to do this, actually thinking that they were having a very spiritual experience. Now, Paul is going to develop that in a couple ways. But what's clear is that even the unsaved world is aware that there's some form of spiritual battle going on. The way that, I mean, normally the way they get it is they get it through Hollywood, so they just assume that the exorcist is actually doctrinal. You know, and so they kind of get the idea. That, I mean, it's like amazing. People don't believe in God, but they believe people could be possessed by demons. Figure that one out, right? I remember a, a friend of ours that was in a, um, in a Christian punk band, believe it or not. And uh, he was at a place called the Devil's Alley. I can't remember where that's in. Somewhere in the Netherlands. And these guys were all big, hardcore Satanists, whatever that meant for them. And he's like, do you believe in God? And they're like, no. Do you believe in the Bible? No. Do you believe in Satan? Yes. He goes, that just shows you how stupid you are. Satan comes from the Bible. You know? Anyways, that, that's the punk world. Uh, the whole point of it was, is that, so imagine if you just got saved, and all you know is there's a spiritual world out there, and you sit and you go, Paul, could you tell me about the spiritual world? I don't get it. And let's face it, most of the Christian world doesn't get the spiritual world either. Because it's like, to be honest, we try to get it through experience, but you've got to know this. Any doctrine you build off of experience is a dangerous one because how do you really gauge experience? How do you say, well, this is a, an absolute, unchanging, unvariable thing because the experiences change? So Paul, de Paul develops two, two very, very big issues. This issue of the mystery, and the mystery cult, again, was how do we unite heaven and earth? And again, through them, that was the union of a temple prostitute, which in essence was an ambassador of Diana or Artemis, and then the human being having this intercourse with them. But then there was the issue of the heavenly places. Now, I don't know who did their homework here and who didn't, but I can tell if you did your homework, you already probably have a really clear idea of the heavenly places. 
And by the way, the most the one text we're most familiar with in regards to the heavenly places is in the area of Ephesians six, when it tells us to put on the full armor of God that we can take our stand against these principalities and powers. Because we aren't battling in the flesh, we're battling in the heavenly places. So what we're aware of is that there's this wrestling, and that's the term we see in Ephesians 6, there's this wrestling with the spiritual world, these principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. And if that's the only text you know, why wouldn't that freak you out? If you have some kind of concept of what the scripture says about demons and that whole world, you get the idea that it's like, I'm toast. How in the world am I going to wrestle that? I can't even see it. It's not even, you know, it's not physical. I mean, I don't know on hand-to-hand combat if it was just a guy. We, you know, we made, who knows how well match would be. But how do you fight something you can't see? So, so let me ask you, if you've done your homework and you have it near you, can you tell me the first time the spiritual places, I'm sorry, the heavenly places is mentioned in the book of Ephesians? Um, yeah. Oh, take it, girl. What's it say? Um, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. Okay. How about? Okay, no, that's verse. That's verse six. Okay, go back a few, because go to verse three first. That is a beautiful verse, by the way. And that's actually two six, right? Two, five, and six. Look back in chapter one. Who can tell me anything about the heavenly places in chapter one? Excellent. Verse three. Nice job, Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? What does it say? Every spiritual spiritual blessing. Yes, in the heavenly places, in Christ. Now, if you're comfortable circling, circle the in Christ, because what you're going to find is that becomes functionally pivotal in all of these. So what's the first thing we know about the heavenly places? Yeah, and how many spiritual blessings do I have? Everyone. But there is a, it's contingent on one thing. What, what's required for me to have all of these spiritual blessings? Excellent, I need to be in Christ. Does that make sense? So, okay, so, here I am, first of all. Now, I, we know we're going to get to the I wrestle thing, right? But if we're going to go to the I wrestle thing, the first thing I know is I have every spiritual blessing, every, and by the way, every means literally all, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places if I'm in Christ. That's a good start, isn't it? Then, when I go from that, what can I, there's one other place in Ephesians 1 as well, in regards to the heavenly places. Can anyone tell me what the other one is? Who can tell me? Ephesians 1... The other place where heavenly places are mentioned. Okay, what was that? Verse 20. It tells us that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and the Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Look at the next verse. 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, given to be the head of all things to the church, uh, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's the second thing we know about the heavenly places? <coughs> Jesus is above everything there. He is above every principality, every power we might. If, there's, if the guy's got a name, he's under him. If he doesn't have a name, he's probably still a principality or power. He's still under him. Jesus is above everything in the, in the heavenly places. And by the way, notice it tells us that he's seated there. Do you know what that means? That means he's done. Jesus is not threatened. He's not, I mean, if an enemy is there, if a challenge is presented, he is standing. The only two times where a person at the right hand stands is to execute the order, a challenge like that, or to welcome a dignitary. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Stephen's being stoned, what he saw? said he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know why Jesus was standing there? It wasn't because he was being challenged. He was welcoming a dignitary. That was Stephen. Okay, so here are the two things. What's the first thing we know about the heavenly places? <coughs> yeah, what do we have there? Okay, so now say it with some meaning because I want you to get this in your spirit, not just in your head. What's the first thing about the heavenly places? I love the way you said that, Dan. I have every spiritual blessing. I'm in Christ. Are you in Christ? Well, then this applies to you, right? I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's the second thing I know about the heavenly places? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, above every principality, power, might, and dominion, and everything that's named. You got that so far? Then he tells us in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Look at Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places. In excuse me, Christ Jesus raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. Where are we sitting? Together. And do you know where? In the heavenly places. And we're sitting with Christ. Where is Christ sitting? The right hand of the Father. And what else, what else do we know in regards to that? Excellent. He's above all things. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he is above everything. And where am I sitting? Where are you sitting? With Jesus. And therefore, at the right hand of the Father, above everything. Did you get that so far? Now, it, now, you don't read this when you get to spiritual warfare books, do you? It's sad. Okay, so now we know three things. What's the first of them? Excellent. Come on, say it with feeling. Say, I have every spiritual blessing. I have every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places. As long as I am in Christ. And I am. So we're good there. What's the second thing we know? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father above everything. What's the third thing? 
I'm seated with Christ. Yeah, excellent. I'm sorry, I didn't mean kind of, yeah. I'm seated with Christ. So that means everything that applied to Jesus in that sense, positionally, applies to me. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that's named. Does that make sense so far? As long as I am in Christ. And that's gonna, you're going to see that constantly play out. In Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Now that's important in this. So I'm actually more than just seated with Jesus. I'm actually seated in Jesus, if that makes sense. Now, what's the next time we see the heavenly places? Excellent. 310. Now let's go back for a minute. Start in 3.8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. We'll talk about that mystery in a moment. Remember that mystery of uniting heaven and earth? Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ or through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What in the world does that mean? The church has a purpose here. What is it? Okay, and what are we preaching? We're m- literally making known. What's that? The riches of Christ. Excellent. Okay, the riches and wisdom of, of Christ. Now, in the simplest sense, do you know what we're declaring? The victory of the cross. Who are we declaring the victory of the cross to? Principalities and powers. That's what it says in verse 10, doesn't it? Positionally, where are they compared to us? They're below us. They're below us. Why do I need to declare it to them if they're below us? Who do you think really needs to hear it? I think you do. I think I do. Imagine if we actually got our doctrine from Scripture. We as a church are making known to the world, but here to the, to the principalities and powers, the riches of the grace of God, the power in his wisdom. And I'm saying that we are victorious in Christ and you have lost. So when the enemy lies and says you're defeated, you're a loser, and you want to listen, Properly declare what you should here. You're victorious. And then we have our last text. But before we get there, what's the first thing we know about the heavenly places? I have every spiritual blessing there, as long as I am in Christ. Second thing I know, what is the second thing I know about the heavenly places? Excellent. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God above all things. What's the third thing we know? Excellent. 
God made me alive, raised, us, raised me up, and sat me in Christ. Ah, and where am I then? Right hand of the Father above all principality, power, might, and dominion. What's the fourth thing? The church declares that victory. And finally, the fifth thing. Chapter 6, verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Look at what we wrestle against. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. Do those things sound familiar? Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places? What do I know about the things I wrestle with? What's that? Excellent, I'm over them. Yeah, they're below me. As long as I am in Christ. You guys don't miss this. Because here's the whole fundamental aspect of Ephesians in this. You know what the real spiritual battle is? Trying to get you off Christ's lap. That's the whole spiritual battle in that sense. I challenge you in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in, in, you know, I, I, I offend people that really love the spiritual, you know, spirit, spiritual warfare thing. It's all in your mind. I don't mean that like it doesn't exist. The spiritual battle is over your thought life. Don't believe me? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. The one thing we need to take captive is our thought life. And so the reason I say that is, as you're seated in Christ, and the enemy goes, oh, he's not giving you this, you need to go get it yourself. Or you know it's a sin, but you want to do it anyways, and you're like, you know what, I want to, and it's just getting you to, to just constantly think that you're not in Christ. And you know what happens then? You buy the lie, you, you punch the ticket into the train of Loserville, and then you spend the rest of your life walking around defeated, because somewhere in all of this, you actually believe the lies instead of the scripture that says, you're above all of those things. Now, a guy that may be possessed may be able to whack you upside the head. And it could cause physical damage. Although we don't really have much, well, we have one case of that, but it doesn't seem like those guys, well, actually, it's pretty clear they weren't Christians, the seven sons of Sceva. But really, when it comes to the spiritual battle, we are already, we were dead. And he raised us up, and he seated us in Christ, above all of those things. The, the, in the heavenly places where that spiritual battle is, where spiritual warfare takes place, I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. I'm seated in Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father above everything. Therefore, I get to be. And I am going to declare his victory because the real wrestle will be me being wanting to be quiet and actually believing this rubbish about that I'm not victorious when I really am. Sounds to me like a pretty rigged fight. Kind of like that whole WWE thing. I read the script. We win. The only difference is they don't take a dive, but they lose. We already know the end of it. Does that make sense in regards to that? Here's the warning. Do you know who will argue with you the most over that? Believers who have gotten their doctrine from Hollywood or from spiritual experience. And they'll be like, and you ask, can a Christian be possessed? Oh yeah, I've been possessed several times. Well, I can tell you this, a Christian can be possessed, but not by a demon. We are already possessed by Jesus. His spirit dwells within us. We're possessed. No wonder why the world thinks we're nuts. Do you think God's actually going to share? It tells us, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What communion does God have with the sons of Belial? Show me one place in Scripture where a Christian gets possessed. 
People say, what about Judas Iscariot? Wasn't he that poor guy when they followed Jesus? We've read John. We know better. He was a thief from the beginning. He is not the example. I'll have to say, when it comes to the spiritual battle, sit in Christ, declare his victory. And you know what it tells us? We're going to see here in a moment, you're going to walk, 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 and then stand, stand, stand. That's what you do in the new part. Any questions in regards to the heavenly places? So I can look out at the sky and go, okay, in its own way, it's underneath me. In the most important way. Not like I believe I can fly our Kelly stuff. The mystery. This crazy union between heaven and earth. Well, we have a few verses in regards to that too, don't we? This is what it tells us. First of all, in Ephesians 1.9, he made known the mystery of his will. In Ephesians 3.3, he said by revelation, he made known, God made known to Paul the mystery that he wrote, that he's already briefly written about. But when we read it, we would understand the knowledge of that mystery which in other ages have not been made known. So this was a mystery others didn't know, but we do. And what is that great mystery, according to Ephesians chapter 3? It all boils down to 3.6. What does it say in 3.6? Someone want to read that? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. That the Gentiles should be below heirs. Fellow heirs, yes. Of the same body and partaker of his, of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So what is the basic mystery here? It is a union. Can you have a what? Oh, right there. Well, that was quick. So, what is the basic mystery now that we've figured out, or the, I'm sorry, that the Holy Spirit has made known to us that others wanted to look into but couldn't? Put it in your own words. What is it? Be united with Christ. Okay. We're also we're also united with someone else, according to this verse. We are definitely united with Christ. You're right. If we're fellow heirs, who else are we united with? Each other. Yeah, and who are the original heirs? Jesus. Excellent. So what has God done? Who is he united? The Gentiles and the Jews. Excellent. He's united the Gentiles and the Jews. And how has he done it? Through Jesus. Jesus was the thing that did it. The great mystery is that heaven and earth are connected and that God is united even... Remember how in the, in the case, and again, the weird perverted thing, where it was like heaven and earth were united by uniting two groups of people temple prostitutes and the clients that came in to Ephesus. So if you will, it was the locals and uh, if you will, the residents and the, and the foreigners. Well, the residents were the Jews, the foreigners were the Gentiles, and they were united, but not through that weird, not through that act, it wasn't weird in their marriage, but it's like, not through that act, it was through the act of actually accepting Jesus. We both became fellow heirs. There's the crazy part. As a matter of fact, this is what it tells us as well. He says, remember, that he would make known the fellowship of that mystery. That means we have this in common. But then he says this. 
uh, in ch- chapter 5, when he speaks about a man and his wife, this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. There is a union between Christ and the church. And then finally, in, in, in Paul, prayed, uh, Paul asked for prayer that he may be quick to, and bold to make known that mystery. But what he tells us is that Jesus is our peace, having broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, interesting, he would use that metaphor because that's not an Ephesian metaphor. That's actually a Jewish metaphor. In the temple proper, there was the court of the Gentiles. We're well aware of that because we know several things take place in the court of the Gentiles. But there was a spot, and it was only as far as the, they would call it Solomon's Colonnade, but there was, it was only as far as they could go. And then there was this wall, it's about this high, and there were these, there was these spaces where people could go in. I know, you probably couldn't see over it if you go. But for, for the normal people. Um, but it would actually say that anyone who is a Gentile but goes beyond this spot will be responsible for their own death. And it was like, from that point on, it was only that the, it was the Jews could go on beyond that point, but the Gentiles couldn't. So there was a wall of separation. And what he said is, what Paul is saying is that Jesus tore down that wall. A Jew has no inside circle on this. They do have the oracles of God. We saw that in Romans. They do have a background there. But, fundamentally, we are just as entitled to the graces and benefits and blessings of God as anybody born into the family originally. And you know, I can be honest. I get this because I don't love either of my daughters different than the other. And one was born through our genes and one we had the privilege of basically being handed to us. And the, I mean, I, and the reason I say that is, is that neither one of them has the inside track over the other. That would make sense. One's older, so we have a little bit more experience together. But I know you know I love neither more than the other. I love them both the most. And I just, I love that I get that in my own household because I'm constantly reminded. I mean, imagine the fact that the Father actually loves you as much as he does Jesus. And Jesus, remember, tells us when he was praying in John 17, he says that you would, that with the love that you loved me before the world began, there was this love that they had before the foundation of the world. And that same love, even though they, clearly it's, you know, from eternity, and this love that God had for the Jews. He has for me as well. And it's like, I am no less loved than anyone else. I tend to think I'm God's favorite. I just tend to think you are too. You can think that as much as you want. I just know I'm his, and you are too. So there are these two great mysteries. There is the mystery of us being united with the Father through Jesus Christ, and then us being united to the Jew through Jesus Christ. In both cases... There is a union. I think that's fascinating. And so for a group of people that were like, it's just a mystery, Paul's like, you know, it's amazing how many people didn't get this, but they do now. Remember when in the book of Acts, Gentiles were getting saved, and, the, and it seemed like there was a whole batch of people called the circumcision Pharisees who had believed, who could not believe that Gentiles could get saved. They're like, that just, there's no way they could be fellow heirs. Paul says, oh yeah, they are. Does that make sense? So this is what I want to do for a moment. I just want to pray. We're going to take a small break. And we're going to actually go 
first half, second half. Remember, it's like what he's done for us. And then the second half, what our response to that is. So let's pray for a moment so we can kind of get ourselves wrapped up. And that would be great. So, Book of Ephesians is a very tidy book. Six chapters, the first three chapters, what God did for us. And then the second chapter is what God wants to do through us. And more, more so, I might say it this way. Uh, in the first three chapters, uh, you know, we see God's, uh, God's motion. And then in the second three chapters, we see our response. And I think it's, think about how brilliant it is that God placed this book after Galatians. Because remember, the whole point of Galatians is God makes the move. We respond, not the other way around. That's the problem of going back to the law, is it's about us making the move, hoping God responds. Every other religion is you make the move, hoping God responds. Christianity is about God making the move, wanting us to respond. And in that, then we go to Ephesians, and we really see it borne out. First three chapters, God makes the move. Last three chapters, we respond. And in a simple sense, our response is, walk, 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 and if can't, walk, stand. That's kind of the simple of it. <coughs> so, prayerfully, this will make as much sense to you as it does to me. <coughs> First three chapters. First of all, remember what it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good measure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by whom he made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And notice I highlight words. We're blessed, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're accepted, and we're redeemed. Pretty great startup. Excuse me. Notice again, redemption is going to be a, a theme through these first three chapters, because I remind you, Ephesus really gets the idea of redemption, uh, but just from a commercial perspective. Now, let me tell you an irony within the body of Christ. You may not know it. I have two minors. I don't even know if we have a thing called a minor here. You have major areas of study, which you get your degrees, and you have minor areas of study, and they can be completely irrelated, as in, as in mine. One of my minors is in philosophy, religious philosophy specifically. I had gotten saved through my college, my university experience, and really wanted to know what I was dealing with. And one of the classes you start to study is a, is a class in logic. Logic's kind of a simple thing, but it really, to be honest, logic is a lot like math, if you like maths. If you don't like maths, you're probably not going to like logic, because it's basically verbal algebra. But there are these particular moduses, modi. They're kind of certain statements. Like, for instance... If A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. For instance, if an orange, if you know, let's, let's think of an orange is a fruit, and a fruit is food, then orange is a food. That's that's actually a very simple uh, precept. But one of the he says, but one of the simplest fallacies um, is you can't if if a if a statement is true, the converse isn't necessarily true. Like you can say. You know, all men have large feet. But you can't say all people with large feet are if you don't have a large foot, you're not a man. You know, that's kind of the idea. Or you can say, like, you know, and there, there be, it's dangerous when the contrary becomes, you try to make it a, a point. You know, we could say, you know, all, 
You know, the men are on the left. Actually, all the men are in this room. All the men in this house are in this room. Therefore, if you're in this room, you must be a man. Well, that's a foolish statement because obviously that's not true either. So there are these different kind of verbal fallacies. Well, the, if, some, if a statement is made, the converse or the negative of it doesn't necessarily be true. The reason I say that is it's considered a simpleton's mistake. In other words, you're not very bright if you do that in, the, in that particular world. And yet, the Christian world tries to play out that particular statement and say that it's brilliant, which is a little strange for the unsaved world. And here it is. It tells us that he predestined us as adoption to sons. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do I believe that to be true? Absolutely. Did God choose Marcia before the foundation of the world to be adopted? Sure, he did. Now, uh, believing that Marcia has fully responded to the gospel, I'm fully into that. Now, what about that person out there right now drinking, you know, that fosters out there? Did God not choose him for adoption? Clearly, he doesn't seem to be at this particular moment, while he's kind of there almost barfing. He doesn't seem to be, you know, hallelujahing and that kind of thing. Well, the converse isn't necessarily false just because the statement is true. But people say, well, therefore, God must have not chosen others if he chose Marcia. Well, that's not true. And the reason I say that is the focus is not on, well, maybe somebody else isn't chosen by God. The issue here is that what Paul recognizes is that the people who are in Christ were clearly chosen by God. God clearly chose them. Now, we're blessed we're chosen, we're adopted, we're accepted in the beloved. Now, accepted in the beloved means we're not just accepted by God, we're accepted in the family, in the beloved. We're accepted in the fellowship, and then we have redemption through his blood. These are things that God did, and the fact that he says before the foundation of the world, the point is he had to initiate it because we weren't even there to start it. Does that make sense? The point is God was the initiator. Before you existed, God was already making plans to get you. In 111, it says we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined. Again, God had a plan for you, and that plan for you was to be adopted. Now, the question is, does God have a plan for that guy out there to be adopted? Just because he has a plan for you and you've said yes, doesn't mean he didn't have a plan for the guy here who was not saying yes yet. That, and, and again... Why would we focus on them when we can see how awesome it is to be this person? <laughs> now, it's good to know that you were never a surprise to him. You were never like, oh, now what do I do? Deborah's on earth. Now, Daniel might be thinking that sometimes. But as far as, but it's like God, it's like when Deborah said yes to God, he knew that she was going to say yes. And by the way, he already has a plan of what he's going to do in her life. That's the beauty in it. So you have obtained an inheritance. 113, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we've talked about that. Chapter 2, verse 1, he made you alive. Now, if he made you alive, you know what state you were in before that. And this is a beautiful thing, because he's already told us that he adopted us. Here's the great part. Only God would adopt a dead baby, a dead person, because only God has the power of life to actually give you life. That's why we wouldn't adopt a dead child, because what in the world would we do with that? On the other side of it, God can do that and make you alive. But notice again in 2.5, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up together and made us sit 
together. Your place in Christ is the same place as my place in Christ. We sit together. Chapter 2, verse 8, we've been saved through faith. Not of your, yourselves, it is the gift of God. Again, who has to initiate for it to be a gift? The giver. If you have to initiate to get a gift, it's no longer a gift. It's an earning. And I love that what he says. Because, verse 10, this is 2.10, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Deborah, what's the... the the Italian word for masterpiece? Capolavoro. Capolavoro. Voro, voro. Lavoro, which means work. Okay, capolavoro. Like oh, okay, capolavoro. I always, I always, for whatever reason, keep getting pericoloso, which is dangerous, right, in my head. Yes. And that's every time I want to access the word for masterpiece, I always get pericoloso. Capolavoro. The word for workmanship here is the word poema in the Greek, which, of course, we get the word poem from. In the simplest sense, we are his masterpiece. Now, I'd love to bring this up to artists, because if I were to ask you, <clears throat> give me a masterpiece. What comes to your mind? Mona Lisa. Okay. What else? What comes to your mind? What's that? Symphony. A symphony. Okay. Why oh, you look so different with your Me? You? Oh, nice. Well, you fit right in there. You're clearly here. <laughs> Any other thing? When you think of a masterpiece. Perfect dish. Oh, food. Yeah, that's you go. How about you, Deborah? Um, even a, I don't know, a landscape or something like that. Okay, a landscape. Sure, beautiful. Maureen, what do you think? Okay. When we think of masterpieces, interestingly enough, we almost always, although I would I'd say you've brought in a different uh, facet of it, we tend to think of things unanimated, inanimate. The Mona Lisa is a classic example, a particular sculpture, a painting at the Sistine Chapel, things that are called masterpieces. Brishnikov's performance of the Nutcracker doesn't come to mind, though many would say it was a masterpiece. The reason I say that is masterpieces can be in performance as well as in two-dimensional art form, or three-dimensional if we're looking at a landscape, for instance. It's clearly God's masterpiece. Well, actually, here's the interesting part. God never said that that landscape was his masterpiece, or a sunset. God is actually in a performance art. I sat with a, a room of, I think it was 35 dancers, and asked them, tell me about masterpieces. Not a single one of them brought up a dance. I thought that was interesting, because it's an art form. Here's the point. Have you ever seen how cool the deep sea is? Like, you ever watched one of those nature programs? And, like, the funky, crazy-looking things that are down there jellyfish that light up and, and the lights go around like they're part of a theater marquee or whatever. Crazy, crazy stuff down there that we're like still trying to figure out how to get down that deep without getting crushed. 
But we're looking at this stuff, and we're like, whoa. And then, you ever see that anglerfish thing? They call, I think they call it an angelfish, which sounds horrible. But it's got this little light that dangles down like this. And, just, and then it's got these teeth that are like, ay, ay, ay. You ever see that thing? And the teeth look almost exactly like that dog kind of thing from Despicable Me. You know? But you look at that thing, and in its own way, you're like, that thing's way cool. Now, really cool, because I'm not getting bit by it. There are worms that do crazy stuff. Do you know that I saw there's this... Have you ever heard of an atlas moth? Withstands, withstands hurricanes. Now, I don't know if you're freaked out by moths, but it can get as much... A, what it said was it can get as much as a meter. That is a big moth. That's not even a moth anymore. That, like, carries your kids. But it's like... So it's, this is its wingspan? Anyways, how cool is God? Then you look out to the sky. Has anyone ever seen the pictures from the, tele, the Hubble telescope? Colors unbelievable. You're like, this is a doctored photo. And they're like, no, this is this what we see. The crab nebulae kind of looks like a crab, but it's got these cool greens and blues and purples. And you're like, this thing is so cool. Ever seen pictures of the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights? I'm going for my 60th. Well, you're 60th, so in about 20, 20 40, 30 years? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I hope I look that good when I'm 50. Oh, wait a minute. Too late. Um, you probably saw a lot, didn't you? Up in those those high hills of the Laplace. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like what God does. I mean, I can show you pictures from two days ago that to still, to me, almost take my breath away as I look at them. I'm like, amazing. Sun setting over oceans or whatever. But even here, the colors that he paints the sky with. And yet God looks at those things like, yeah, whatever. And you're his masterpiece? Have you ever thought that through? Of all the things that God made, you're his masterpiece? Have you seen the intricacies? That was a hard word to say, intricacies. Of, of certain flowers, how the colors come. We just got peonies for the first time. It looked like little balls and then they open up and then they look like they want to eat you and the colors and the, they're just so cool and funky and I'm like God you are so cool or you ever see those lizards that walk on water when they want to get a girl man what a lizard has to do to get a girl you know it like kind of looks like a lizard pops up and then he goes like this I, mean, I don't know that Windsor you know and she's like oh check him out he's walking on water that's my boy <laughs> But God invented these things. So why are you the masterpiece? Because you have a will. Okay, let me ask you. What kind of masterpiece are you? Read the verses carefully. They're right here. What does it say? Chapter 2, verse 10. There is workmanship. Keep reading. Oh. When is God's masterpiece revealed? You ready for this? When you're doing what he made you to do. Isn't that what it says? Created for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should do what with them? 
What's the term he uses there? Walk. Walk. Don't miss that. Not perform, not just do them. It isn't like God prepared duties that you do. He prepared, and literally, the word for uh, works, it just means actions, behavior. When you are doing what God created you to do, you outshine the world borealis, and you're cooler than any fish in the sea. You are, as far as God's concerned, His greatest work. How amazing is that? Which means, I think at the moment I get to be His. I'm created, I'm, I'll just say recreated to do what I'm doing right now. I love it. Love it. And then I look at a sunset and God's like, yeah, that's just pollution in the sky. But, yeah, I want you to feel that pleasure. You ever had anyone look at you not, I mean, this is, try not to make this sound weird. You ever had anyone look at you not romantically but look at you like you're just beautiful. I, I guarantee you, whether my kids know it or not, they've been watching their dad do it since they've been alive, since at least since I've known them. They're beautiful. And they're masterpieces. And when they do, when they do things that is joyful with a relationship with me, I absolutely delight in that. I want you to know that. He's like, I want you to know what God's done for you. Before you do anything, before we get to 4 through 6, let me tell you what you need to know. God created you to walk. Notice that's the term. He created you to walk in a way of the way that He made you. And it's the greatest masterpiece He's ever done. Everything else he's spoken and happened, right? And you, he's been working on you ever since. What do you think happens there? I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to develop that. I couldn't walk past that. 2.13, you were brought near. You who were once afar off, do you know who he's talking to there? The Gentile world. You were aliens. You weren't citizens of this. You were far away. But in verse 19, it says, You're no longer aliens, strangers, foreigners. You're fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And you're fellow heirs, partakers of the promise. So he says then at the end of it all, imagine this is the first three chapters. Look at all God's done for you. And then he ends with this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above, all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. We don't like to add that last part. We just tend to think that what that means is I'm asking God for, you know, a smart car and God wants to give me the, you know, the Bentley. And that's like kind of the weird place we go, but it's like, look at, don't miss that 320 comes after two chapters and 19 verses. And he's like, look at all the things God has done for you. I'm going to have us read those other verses or what we should do as a response to that. Listen, you're blessed, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're accepted, not just in Christ, but in this family. You have, you're redeemed, you have an inheritance, you were sealed, 
You've been made alive. You've been seated in Christ. You are above all of those other things. You've been made alive together, raised up together, sit together. That's why we're accepted. We're all in the same place. We've been saved. We are saved. We've been brought near. Even though we were far away, he brought us in. We're fellow citizens. We're fellow members of the household of God. We're fellow heirs. We're partakers of his promises, literally of his promise in Christ Jesus. And then through, uh, through Christ in, the, or in Christ through the gospel. And this is the God who's able to do exceedingly above anything you ask or think. Now let me ask you, do you really think you can outplan God? Not a dream at all. Well. Do you really think that you can outplan God? Let me remind you, before you were created, He already had a plan for you. He had already ordained the way you were going to be so that if you were to walk in His will, it would be the greatest masterpiece. Now, what if, here's the crazy part. What if God calls you to be a housewife? Daniel, that will not be you. <laughs> what if he calls you to be a housewife? Ladies. But that's what he created you for. Could you be a masterpiece housewife? A masterpiece, masterpiece street sweeper? A masterpiece anything? Because if you realize, if you're doing what God made you to do, you're being a masterpiece if you walk in it. What if that's being a mother? What if that's being a student? And by the way, what you'll find is whoever you are will then apply to your context, your life context. In other words, you may not be, you you weren't created necessarily to be a mother, but you were created and when you are a mother, you will exercise who you are. And what we're going to see is that's going to be in the second portion of this, is how we walk now. You'll be in a context. In other words, who you're created to be, then you're put in as a student, or a teacher, or a barrister, or a solicitor, or a person who's a fry cook, or somebody who's making cakes, or somebody that's selling guitar strings, or a pick, or a drumstick. That's just a context to who you are. But when you leave there, you may not be selling drumsticks anymore, but you're still the person you are. The reason I say that is, you probably wouldn't think I'm a pastor no matter where I go. That'll drive you crazy if you don't want to be pastored, because that sounds a lot like pestered. But it's, but it's just who I am. And it doesn't, you put me in a context, I'm just going to be that wherever I am. It's part of who I am and walking, and it's the, I sense God's pleasure in that. It's part of the joy of it. And now unto Him. Now one is the, the one who is able to do mind-blowingly above anything you can ask for and mind-blowingly above anything you can imagine. Think. Now let him get the glory. Though. Does that make sense so far? If he's done all of these things already, you think it's now it's like God going, now it's your turn? We respond to those things, but as we respond to those things, God is still doing things. My whole life is about responding, which is a little hard because, you know, if you know me, I'm always one of the kind of people that's like, all right, if, I can't, if it's not happening, I should make it happen. <laughs> and you know what happens when you make it happen? You have a whole lot of Ishmaels running around. Because <laughs> you're like, well, God, like, well, let me make it happen. That's hard. So let me tell you how we should respond. Are you with me? Are, are you guys with me? Have I lost you? Because I'm enjoying this. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. 
I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. What does that tell us? Paul is writing from prison. It's one of the letters Paul wrote while he was in prison at the end of the book of Acts. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling by which you are called. Called past tense, or in the sense of, well, you're still experiencing it. But the bottom line is, God called you. Now walk worthy of that. Does that make sense? I mean, anything that you respond to, you're either going to respond with your heart or without it. So, someone hires you, they expect you to do a job, do it with all your heart. Someone marries you, they expect you to be a specific, you know, person or whatever. You know, you know it's like, especially, you know, if you have me counseling you prior to that, you'll know this is the biblical standard. Walk worthy of the title. Do you realize how amazing it is to be called by some of these titles that I get to be called by? As a husband, how amazing it is to be called by that title. Or as a father, for me to be called a father, how amazing it is to be called that. Or the word pastor, you've got to know, I take that word so seriously. And I realize it's like, I want to walk worthy of what it really means to be that. Imagine what it would be like to be like friend. Someone calls you their friend. I want to walk worthy of that. If that's what I'm going to be. Because you know what? You've been called to be, a, you're adopted. You are a child of God. Walk worthy of that. You are beloved. Walk worthy of that. Now walk worthy does not mean earn it. There's the danger. What it means is live up to the name. So, you've been adopted, live up to that. You're a member of the household of God, live up to that. Imagine what that would be like. You are redeemed, live up to that. Give, you know, put some weight behind that word now. You want to call yourself a Christian, and you should. Walk up to that. So, you know, it's like, I, you've got to learn by now, because I say it so much. If you haven't been around me, yet, you know, if you've been around me, you've heard it. It's like, when we give up a title, the world just takes it and makes it their own. It's time to take them back. And it's like, we should not be ashamed to call ourselves what we are. So walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. What does it look like? With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what it would really look like if we walked worthy of what we were called? We'd be humble and gentle, and patient, and, and we would be long-suffering. And we would really work hard to be unified. It tells us in chapter 4, by the way, you're going to have some help. In this family, you are going to have some help. He gave some. Notice it doesn't say he gave everyone to do this. He gave some to be apostles. Do you know what an apostle is? It's kind of hard, isn't it? You're like, well, is that a guy in a robe that tells everyone what to do? Apostle means sent out. Literally, apostle is a church planner. That's all it is. A guy goes out and shares Jesus where people aren't hearing it. Plants a church there. Now, we always think of it more from an authoritative perspective than a responsibility perspective. Remember, God always puts an equilibrium between authority and responsibility. But basically, an apostle is the guy that goes out and he pioneers. Then there's some that are prophets. A prophet, by the way, is not sent to the world for the most part, although there will be some that are. But for the most part, they're sent to call God's people to repentance. 
Some will be evangelists. An evangelist simply is sharing the gospel of Jesus. And he's got a gift at it. Some, by the way, pastors and teachers. By the way, the idea of that is those two words are to be put together. That's why there's that and. It isn't like comma, 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 and some. The idea of it is pastors and teachers should be, by the way, a pastor should teach. Now, what's, what, and by the way, obviously I'm going to be at least one of those. Two of them with a teacher. Well, this is what I better be doing. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Right now, that's part of what you're doing. If I could challenge you to walk as the masterpiece God created you to be and walk worthy of that. Walk with it with all your heart. I've already, I've already done my job to some degree. Walk, it says, for the equipping of the saints in ministry, for the building up of the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, I would expect the fruit be that we would be unified, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, and that means to your complete end of where God calls you, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would no longer be children, which means that part of what I get to do with help grows you up. Tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. And the idea is simple. When we grow up, we grow up, we grow together, and we grow under Christ's headship. Did you notice that? A side note, in this we learn to speak the truth in love. But one thing I've discovered in the years of serving the Lord is we learn first how to speak the truth. And then as we grow, we learn how to speak the truth in love. So there is this point where you're actually saying the truth, but you ain't saying it necessarily in love. And we're like, wow, that just seemed cold and uncool. It's like, well, they're learning. Well, they've got the truth to speak. Now they need to learn how. There's the what and there's the how. Okay, so I'm going to hand these around now. Let's take a look at the rest of them. 417, Marcia. If I say, if I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. And I'll talk about what that looks like. Well, what's clear is, you walked before, you just didn't walk well. <laughs> you walked in a bad way. Your mind, by the way, was putting up worthless or empty things. Mine too, by the way. What else should we do in regards to our walking? 4.22 through 24. Um, that you push off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you push on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Then from that, for the rest of the chapter, he's going to show what that looks like. But hear me on this. This is what you probably did this morning. I wasn't watching you. Don't freak out. But this is my guess. This morning, you got up and you removed the clothes you slept in because you probably weren't going to walk around in them all day. You took a shower and you put on new clothes that were fitting for the day. The reason I say that, he goes, get that illustration because that's what you're supposed to do in your walk with Christ. You put off the old you because it's not fitting for the new walk. You renew the spirit of your mind. That's like taking a shower. We do that in his word. And then we put on the new man. One, by the way, that was created according to God. And true rightness versus self-righteousness and true holiness. The rest of the chapter will tell us what that looks like. By the way, 
that's really how we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, but now we walk the way we should as Christians. Chapter 5, we have other ways to walk, or other things that are appropriate in that walk. 5, 1, and 2. So let me ask you, if we're told to walk in love, and then Jesus gave us that example, what does it look like to walk in love according to Jesus' example here? That's beautiful, Deb, yeah. To give ourselves, notice the word for, versus to. I'd like to encourage us, give ourselves to God for others. Not give ourselves to others for God. Do you hear the difference? One is the boss, then. If I give myself to God, he's the boss. If I don't give myself to God for you, I will actually try to do this in my own flesh, and that will be not beneficial for either of us. What does that look like? An offering and a sacrifice to God. So if I'm to walk in love, but there's no sacrifice in my heart, it's probably not walking in Christ's love. So we walk in love. 5-8. Maureen. Now we're encouraged to walk. And like what we're going to find is that's going to be truth that manifests. That actually, that light clearly shows what is good and what is bad. I want to warn you. When you walk in the light, as we are, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, purifies us from all sin. First John chapter one, it tells us here that when you walk in the light, things that are evil will be clearly seen as evil, and that's going to bother people who, according to John three, don't want to step in the light because if they did, they would be clear that their deeds were evil. And though they won't step in the light, light steps into them the moment you walk in the room. You ever have some people they just have a problem with you because you love God and you haven't even talked to them yet? Okay, well I have. Anyways. So we're to walk in love, and we're to walk in light. What else? Daniel, chapter 5, 15. Uh, see that, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk in wine, in which is dissipation, um, but be filled with the Spirit. Oh. So the guy on a bike? Yeah. And that's his backpack, right? Yeah. It's the same song. He drives by every day. Same song every time. It's his theme song. Like, I'm riding on my bike. (laughs) Middle aged guy, right? No. Okay. Anyways. Okay, look at it. You walk in love, and then he shows us how. You walk in light, and then he shows us what that looks like. How? And then we walk circumspectly, which means you walk carefully. 
You walk, if you will, consciously, conscientiously. In other words, there's no more haphazardness to what you do. I'm going to wander around. We don't wander anymore. We follow Christ. And so with that, we follow him and it says, now don't be unwise. Let me tell you what God's will is. I don't want your life to fall apart anymore. But, which, by the way, the term here is dissipation. Dissipation, by the way, is sort of like when smoke goes in the air and then it just sort of disappears as it fills. You know, it all separates and then gets absorbed. That's what happens to your life when you're not following Christ. But here he tells us something else leads to dissipation. What is it? Yeah. Being drunk. This is what happens when your life is drunk. You know what happens? Is your whole life evaporates into the world. And he goes, you're actually supposed to impact it, not disappear in it. You're actually supposed to stand out. He goes, this is what God's will is. I want you instead of that, where everything falls apart. You know, I ever see like a pile of leaves and a rock goes in a pond and all of them go in opposite directions? That's the whole idea of that. He goes, but rather, be filled with God's spirit. When you're filled with God's Spirit, you'll actually find the opposite happens. Things come to a point now. And so it's just speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God, and then giving thanks to God the Father in all things, but also submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then he says, so let me tell you what that looks like. Let's get right to the core of it, husbands and wives. Let's start there, because it starts with a family. Then let's bring in the children. That's what it looks like as children. Then let's bring in our it's sort of like concentric circles. First circle of life, that romantic thing. Second, children. Then third, what does it look like to work? <coughs> Interesting, in our culture, we almost put that first. Then we say, well, we'll add a wife or a husband to that, and then we'll add kids to that. But first, it's like, first, of course, it's the Lord. Then from there, we go into the intimate relationship, and then to our children, then to our working. As bosses, as servants. Says, and again, those are the contexts to be the person God's made you to be. In that, you walk worthy of the calling he gave you. In that, you don't walk like the world. You walk different from the world. And you walk in, in love and you walk in light. And then you walk carefully. Your steps have purpose now. You know, what you find <coughs> is, there is one of the first things I used to teach when I taught about, you know, we, we used to call it rape prevention in the day, or self-defense is often what it's called now. <coughs> um is the people who tend to get less picked on are people who seem to be walking with purpose. Someone who tends to be walking a little bit like they really don't know where they're going and they're kind of unsure, tends to be more of a, and again, it's not their fault, but they tend to be more of a magnet to a person who's already looking to cause harm because they look like an easier target. And the only reason I say that is, is well, you, know, you know this, if you have nothing to do today and you have nothing planned and you're not seeking the Lord and you're just going to sit on, you're going to find yourself wandering into something stupid. He goes, man, he goes, redeem the time. We already know about redeeming. We're in Ephesus here. We know about redeeming. He goes, man, claim that time. That time is yours now. And if that time is yours, well, then do something with it. It's like you bought that thing, then do something with it. That time is yours. Do something with it. Be who you are called to be. And walk that way. And is this the case? Walk with, in, I'd say, circumcised, speckling, we might just say, walk with purpose. And with that, then, now notice, chapter 5, 4 and 5 are walk, 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 walk. Did you notice that? Chapter 6 is, well, what if you can't walk? Well, then you stand. So, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? Do you know what the word is in the Greek? Stratagem. Want to guess what word we got from that? What are you fighting in the spiritual world? Are you on hand-to-hand combat spiritually? You're fighting concepts, strategies, lies. Notice that's what you're fighting here. It isn't like, oh, you know what the enemy really wanted to do? He just came over on my bed and he started smacking me in the head. First of all, 1 John 5 makes clear that's not the case. But second of all, you need to realize what the enemy is throwing at you are his, his strategies. He's throwing at you his lies. He's got a plan on how to try to get you out of the lap of Christ. Aren't you tired of waiting for this and God hasn't given it to you? Go get it yourself. You know, maybe God's just waiting for you to do it. Really? That didn't work so well for Sarah. Well, you know, I know the Bible says this, but your situation leans itself as if God might make exception to it. No, it doesn't. That's a strategy. His whole strategy is, think of this way, his strategy is to break you up. What should I do? You have this most amazing love affair, relationship, marriage with God. And he's jealous. And he wants to break you up. His whole purpose, now if someone's trying to break you up in any form of relationship like that, think about what they try to do. It is all strategies. It's not about physically attacking you. Well, normally, but the idea, unless that's part of the strategy, but then it's like, the strategy is, how do I get this person away from the other? Well, the pro- well, one thing the enemy clearly knows is, you can't tempt God away from you. So that's a losing cause. So he isn't going to spend any time on that side of things. God's way too committed, and he's not turning back. He doesn't, he's not like a man that repent and relent like that. So the only person he's going to go after then is you. And if he can get you then to actually stop the intimacy, and he, by the way, you know this, you can curtail your intimacy with God and still do all kinds of religious things, and, but that doesn't make it, that doesn't make the relationship right with you. It just allows your conscience to be sad enough that you really don't think about the fact that you're actually not being close anymore. She's like, look it, I want you to be strong in the Lord, and this is what you do. This is the place. He's like, yeah, this is how we walk in regards to the world. But when it comes to the enemy, this is where we stand, because I am not moving from this place. Isn't that what standing means? Guess where I'm standing? In Christ. If I'm standing in Christ, I'm not moving from here. In regards to the world, I'm walking. But in regards to the enemy, I'm standing. And I'm going to take my stand against the wiles of the enemy, or the wiles of the devil. By the way, to stand against, do you know what the word is? Antihistamine. So where we get the word antihistamine from? Because it literally means stand against. Histamine means to stand So, therefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Did you get what he was trying to get us there? Look at it. Stand, put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand. Take up the whole armor of God that you'll be able to withstand. Having done all to stand, then stand. And when you can't stand anymore, stand some more. 
<coughs> because the victory in the, hear me in this, the victory in the spiritual battle is standing. All I have to do is say, I'm not moving. This is who I am in Christ. This is who the Lord told me I am. I am his masterpiece. You, your lies aren't going to make a difference. I know what he said. I'm his. You can't change my mind on that. Nothing can separate me from his love. And that includes you. Nothing can change his mind. That includes you. The only issue now is whether I'm going to enjoy this relationship and invest in it or lose my intimacy by pursuing stupid things in its place. So I gird my waist with truth, put on my breastplate of righteousness, I shod my feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace. Beyond all of that, take the shield of faith by which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful unto the end with all perseverance and supplication of the saints. Now, let me ask you, which of these things is an uh, offensive weapon? <coughs> Interesting. Well, let me just say this. You're in my house. I can show you things. I'll close that. Uh, field trip. I want you to walk with me. There are two Greek words for sword. And this is fundamental. Obviously, a helmet's not an offensive weapon. You can use it as one. But it's, it's for protection. Would you agree? Traditionally. Although, Daniel's got that look on his face. Like, I think he could probably... If Ruthie were in the room, I'm sure she could come up with a hundred different ways it could be an offensive weapon. But it's built... It's created for defense. Breastplate. Unless you're, like, really good at that peck pop of love or that chest bump thing. It's defensive. What does it mean to, to shod or girdle yourself with the truth? What does that mean? Men wore mumus. A lot of African places still wear things where men wear these long sort of gown things. And in a really warm culture, it actually is quite a nice thing, to be honest. Uh, it's a bit liberating, but anyway. Um, but what happens is when you're going to do something, where you know you're going to be doing something that demands physical, uh, and especially walking or running, you take the back end of it, you pull it up, and you tuck it into the front of your sash. It looks a bit like a nappy or like you're about to sumo, but it works. And he says, by the way, the truth does that to you. You want the truth to get you ready for action. Not the truth to make you sit down. The truth gets you ready for action. Because you know what? The truth prepares me for this fight. Nothing prepares me for this fight. Because I remind you, what am I fighting again? What? The strategies. How do I fight the strategies? With truth. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, we know exactly what kind of truth we're using. So I have that. My feet are shod in the preparation of the what? Gospel of peace. You've got to know that in any fight, the most fundamental thing you start with is where's my footing? You lose your footing, you lose the fight. And I'm never going to leave the gospel. Because you know what the gospel tells me? I belong to him. I've been bought, I've been redeemed, I've been paid for. It is a done deal. It is finished. There is no stratagem you can throw at me that's going to get me my feet out of these shoes. My, my, I stand in that first. Does that make sense? 
So the only thing left is the sword. No. Oh, wait a minute. There's one more thing. A shield. Can a shield be used as a weapon? If a guy runs really hard into it? But not normally. So the only thing left is, is a sword. Does that make sense? There's two different words. Makaira and Ramfa. No. I'll show you both. Is that fair enough? Come to my office. This is a rumfa. It's actually officially a rumfa, covered in gold. This is a official King David one. You can tell by his own marking right there. Feel how heavy that is. The idea. Yeah. That's a broad sword, double-edged sword. Now, you imagine you might be able to imagine swinging this just because it'd be, you know. <coughs> Could you imagine that? Now you know. Traditionally, and by the way, if you want later, I can show you. In Ephesus, one of the things I took a picture of. Ooh, let me do this for just a second. I'll appreciate your patience. Just, yeah, thanks. I want to show you a picture if I can. Oh, I know where to find it, I think. Of, um, I took in Ephesus. That is called a rumpha. Let me show you what a makaira looks like. This is a makaira. Now, traditionally, our view is, traditionally, our view is, little, little shield, big sword. Isn't that the way we view things when we think of shield of faith uh, and the sword of the spirit? Which, by the way, the sword of the spirit is what? According to that verse. Do you remember what it was? The word of God. Let me show you three pictures literally taken in Ephesus. You ready for this? So you can decide for yourself when Paul is writing what he's looking at. There's your first one. Does that bring any clarity? Well, maybe you need another. Here's the second one. Look at that sword. Look at how that looks like that. And look at the third one. What's big and what's small? The shield is big. And what's small? The sword. This is a... Yeah, for whatever reason, that doesn't look... <laughs> my heart actually starts to race when you hold that. Uh, almost as much as my daughter. Let me hold that for a moment here. Thank you, Daniel. We can all rest. All right. This is a defensive weapon. The only time you use this is when the enemy gets past your shield. The way that we fight together is we lock shields. And we walk like an impervious wall. If you ever watch classic movies when they try to be culturally accurate, you have a wall of Romans and there was a wall of, of shields. And they get up to a place, and they have these big long things that they stab people for, but when the guys get beyond that shield, they pull this guy out. This, you cannot swing indiscriminately. You, you stick in specific spots. The way that it's built, it's not just like you can just whack, 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 and hope you're going to get somewhere like Peter did when he, when he took Malchus's ear off. You have to get, let me, let me make it clear, they need to get the point. <laughs> now, what is this according to Ephesians 6? So to the Spirit, it's the Word of God, and that's the point. Understand this. 
when the enemy in his stratagems gets past the shield of your faith, you do not swing a scripture indiscriminately. When Jesus did Jesus ever have to be this armed? When was Jesus' spiritual battle? Temptation. The temptation. Jesus didn't wave the sword indiscriminately. He had a point. It is written, and he didn't just pull out a scripture like, Jesus wept, Jesus wept, or in his case, I wept, I wept, I wept. You know? <laughs> and I've heard people do that, where they're like, you know, well, when you feel like you're being tempted or whatever, just throw a verse out, all you want. Man, Judas hung himself, Judas hung himself. You know, that's not going to help anyone. Um, but rather, you have, you have a point to it. And you know what the crazy thing is? You guys, some of you have been with me so long. You don't even know how equipped you are. Because you've not been taught to fight. You fight with your faith. You move forward. But here, it's not even about moving forward. What are we doing here? We're standing. This is just about not losing ground. Because I am not leaving Christ. And so when the enemy tries to throw his stratagem at me, my faith, that's what's going to be assaulted. It's going to hit my faith. In other words, all faith is his trust. So the enemy's got a stratagem and he's trying to get you to not trust Christ. And I'll say, wait a minute, how long have you been waiting for that? Wait a minute, you're no, you'll never be this. You'll never accomplish this. You are too, add your word there, you have it, whatever it is. And you go, wait a minute, I'm going to trust God. And you know, most of the time that works, doesn't it? When you're genuinely, when you're on your game, your feet, you have your footing in the gospel because you know you belong to him, and the enemy comes at you, you're like, no, I trust God, I know better than that. But every once in a while he gets past it, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, and all he has to do, by the way, you know the easiest way to get through a uh, a shield? Keep hitting the same spot over and over again. Because you get tired. So the first time, it bounced right off of you. Just like that. Kept hitting, kept hitting, kept hitting. Then, it started to creep in. How do you get it out? How do you get it back beyond your shield again? It's the sword of the Spirit. And that is the Word of God. Really, what you guys have been fed tonight? You've been fed how to fight. Now, we wrestle. It's active. But we are choosing to be ready to be prepared. Because he's, he's already got his plans. But have you noticed in this scripture, God has his plans? able to do exceedingly and be abundantly beyond anything we ask or think. God's got his plans. And the devil's got his plans to try to get you off of the intimacy of Christ. So, God's got a plan. Enemy's got a plan. And God's plan is to be able to do beyond what you can imagine or think. The enemy's going to play into what you already think. He's just going to weaken. So what happens? I pull out the word. So when you are tempted, and you and especially doubt, remember, doubt is not sin. Doubt is, a, is the dance between faith and, and unbelief. Unbelief is the sin. And you're challenged in there. Ask God, give me a scripture, God, that stabs that in the heart. It's a good prayer, huh? And at that moment, you know what it says in John? The Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance the things that he's spoken of. All right. Upstairs, I want to pray for you and for me. So it was so cool because of all the people who went on the uh, trip with us, 
There was one guy that was really... He was simple in a beautiful way, if that makes sense. He was a totally soul surfer. So he was just one of those like, you know, bro, brilliant when it comes to fixing cars, but you wouldn't want him doing your taxes. And, uh, and these guys prided themselves on being super spiritual leaders because of their experience, and they said they were really smart. And apparently I wasn't. And so uh, we went there, and of all the people, brilliant as God was, it was the man who they, they, were, they were joking about more than anyone. He was the one who discovered these, and he was like, huh, looks like the shield is big, the sword is small. And I was like, can't be more simple than that. Anyways, so look at I want to pray for us. Know this. You're not in hand-to-hand combat. Wrestling means there's two things intertwining and one wants the top. You're wrestling against stratagem. Against lies. And so you, you fight it first with your shield. What does the helmet protect? That should be easy. Your head. What is the helmet of? Salvation. Because guess what your head better know? You are saved. Right. What does the breastplate protect? Your heart. What does your heart need to know? What is the breastplate of? What is righteousness? You are right with God. Do you realize... What your heart needs to know is, I'm right with God. What does your head need to know? I'm saved. I'm saved and I am right with God. How's that? What's your footing? It's the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's how I'm saved. Not by works. I am saved because Jesus did it all. Because I remind you, He did the work. I responded. Isn't that the whole point of Galatians and now Ephesians as well? He did the work. I responded beautiful then I'm preparing myself for battle I recognize the truth doesn't make me fat it gets me ready for action that's girding my loins with the truth (coughs) and I put up my two things that are in my hands the two things in my hands are what my shield that is I trust God and what is the other one the word of God and by the way, isn't it interesting that the one sword that the Spirit wields is the, spirit, is the Word of God, not experience? It's like when the Spirit goes to battle, He goes to battle with the Word. And if the Spirit goes to battle with the Word, I think it's good enough for me. Because what we're fighting are stratagems. And the truth will not only set you free. I remind you, the church is responsible to declare victory. When was the last time you think the church declared victory over the principalities and powers, or over anything, for that matter? Yeah. It's been a long time since the church has been known for being victorious. So that's what I want to pray. I want to pray, remember, God does the, you know, here's the beautiful part about the dance. God invites you. (laughs) But when you say yes, He leads there's a beauty. He makes the motion, we respond. And how do we respond? We walk appropriately. And when it comes to the spiritual battle, we stand. Alright, pray with me.
Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful book. I love Ephesians. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to have been there and see uh, the remains of so much of this and how uh, crazy some of this stuff is that's there. There is Scopolis and all the other things. Uh, Lord, I, and I know that's even more so in, when we get near Colossae. Please, Lord, please help us to understand our complete and absolute victory in the heavenly places. Which includes that's where the battle takes place, where we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. <coughs> Jesus, where you are at the right hand of the Father, above everything, where we are seated, where we've been made alive and seated in you and with you, Jesus, together, where we declare that victory to the principalities and powers and mights that are below us in that heavenly place. And that's where the battle takes place. And so, Lord, we want to be armed with the spiritual things, not because we have anything where we could lose other than this, that we could be challenged to leave the ground we already have. Lord, we recognize that the enemy never conquers this ground. We forfeit it. Show us the difference. Because it's about our trust. It's about your word. And so, Lord, I pray for the battles we are facing right now. Battles of doubt. <coughs> battles of insecurity. Lord, let us hear your voice, your word, and recognize again, we are your masterpiece. May we walk in the manner of a masterpiece. Walk and be the person and walk in the way that you created for us to do so. Please, may we learn to walk and live and stand in your delight. Please, in Jesus' name.